Hello, this is Comeback, this is Connor, and this is episode 71. My guest today is JK Hobson. JK is initially from the States, currently living as an expat here in Saigon, Vietnam. How are you, JK? I'm really good, man. How about you? I'm very good, thank you. Great, Cheers, for, uh, great to have you on today. I appreciate your time. Yeah. So, why don't we start then from the beginning? Um, whereabouts are you from in America, and what was life like growing up? I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, okay. and, and I grew up in New York City. Um, what was life like? I, I lived in New York City in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and it was dope, man. I mean, I, I didn't know how cool it was until years later I moved to other places, and, and when New York changed, and, and now it's like a shadow of its former self yeah, that sure. I can't even recognize anymore, you know? Um, so I didn't, I didn't really have a grip on what a special place it was, mm. you know, but growing up there, I got into music, and I played in bands, and you know, there were venues to play at, and there was a really good DIY scene. I was in the metal and hardcore scene for a long time. And so it was just like, if you just got just marginally good, yeah, you could sure. start playing shows in, in that, you know, in that kind of environment. So, you know, those are my first experiences on stage. And so I landed in a band in a, I was playing in a bunch of bands. I played guitar, bass, and drums for different bands. But then I, I landed at a slot as a second guitar player in this band called Crisis in uh, 98. And then we moved to LA in 2000. And I lived in LA for, for 14 years. Okay, cool. Uh, and then uh, I came out here a couple of years later. That's sweet. So growing up in New York was dope. I mean, it's just such a part of who I am. It's funny, I met another New Yorker uh, like uh, two weeks ago. I took a solo trip to Vung Tao, And I was outside this Spanish restaurant called uh, Rico Taco. Mm. And this guy walks out. The guy's like four foot ten, you know. And he's like, "How you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh, this guy's from New York." Like immediately, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, "I'm good." He's like, "I'm perfect," you know. And then we start chatting, and you know, we played a lot of the same clubs, and you know, we just had such a long talk, and it was it's so cool to meet old school New Yorkers like that, you know. It's like an instant bond. So anyway, so it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. What do you think? The, uh, this is coming from somebody who's never been to the states. What are the main differences between New York and LA? New York is a real city in the sense that it's it's just there's a lot of people. It's tall. There's street life. The subway. It's really diverse, and you got all this diversity of people shoulder to shoulder with each other on the subway, right? Like all kinds of ethnicities, languages, religions, and and we all take the subway, you know. And so it's like this really, you know, and, and although, you know, obviously there's, there's cultural and ethnic differences and, you know, and there's schism between, you know, these different cultures sometimes, um, it's really a melting pot. LA is very segregated. Like if you live in Beverly Hills and you don't have black people working for you, you don't have to see a black person for a long ass time. As well, if you live in Compton and well, it's probably getting gentrified now, y you might not see a white person for a couple of weeks. So although it is diverse in the sense of, you know, in this huge sprawling city, like all the people that you might see if, if you went all over the city, yeah. you still got places called like Little Ethiopia and Thai, uh, Thai town and Little Filipino town and Little Armenia. It's like you guys live over here and you guys live over here. And you guys, you know, in Compton could be black town. You know what I mean? Right, sure. So everything is like very segregated. And you got some places that aren't, but that was... One thing that was really jarring to me. And then, of course, everybody talks about it's a car culture. You know what I mean? So you're, you're at home and you're in this box. 
and then you get in your car and you're in another box and you go to work and then you, you know what I mean? So it's okay, cool. very, you know, you can be very isolated from, from different people. Yeah. But I still love it. It's cool. It's a lot of nature there and cool beaches and forests and stuff like that. Yeah, so. that sounds fun. And what yeah. work were you doing there? I was in a band. I, I moved with my band from, uh, from New York to L.A. Okay. in 2000. So we played a lot, did a bunch of touring. In my off time, you know, in time off from the band, I worked in the casino gaming industry. Sweet, okay. Yeah. Yeah, what was that like? sucked. <laughs> <It> sucked. <laughs> yeah, well, no. I mean, I learned a lot, you know, and I came into clothes. That's probably, well, besides growing up, when I was really little, I lived in a Korean neighborhood for, for a while in New York City. But uh, a mostly Korean, Korean, Italian, and Irish neighborhood for about four years I lived there. But then when I was in the casino gaming industry, that's when I started having like really like close interactions with like, like Asian and South, Southeast Asian populations of people. Yeah, so that sure. was cool. But, um, but I was working on the tables and just watching people throw their lives away. You know, some of them, I'm sure, are still work on the tables right now, gambling as we speak, you know. Um, so that was kind of a drag. But it was really interesting, though, because I got to learn a lot about people. You know, in a casino, you see people at their best and their worst. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, you see some intense... Intense expressions of, of, of human emotion, and, and you see people at their highs and lows, moments of desperation and complete rapture, yeah. and back down to desperation again. You know, yeah, it's like a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Seems intense. Have you got any like stories that stand out from that time? Is there anything that sticks in your mind of seeing somebody at either complete elation or completely broken? I've seen two. I, I'm thinking of two stories right now. One of them, there was a woman, very nice looking. Mexican lady, I think she was a, a nursing student because she'd come in with like OR scrubs. Yeah. And one day she's sitting at my table and she lost all her money. And then she really, you could tell she, and she kind of looks around and some guy sees what happens, what happened to her. And he whispers in her ear. And this casino is called Crystal Park in Compton. I think it's called Crystal City or something now. They changed the name. No, it's just called Crystal Casino now. But it had a hotel built next to the casino, like built into the casino. One of the only casinos in LA that had a hotel built in the casino. And they went upstairs. And I saw, I watched the whole thing. Because like, I was like, when I was working this job, I couldn't really talk that much. Because when customers are losing their money, they really want you to shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? They don't want to hear shit. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So I'm just observing, you know, and she goes upstairs and she comes back downstairs like 40 minutes later. All of a sudden, she's got a bunch of money. I'm like, oh, wow. I know what happened there. Then she comes back to my table. And I, you probably don't have to guess what happened. I watched her lose all her money. And I just remember like looking at her face and looking at that spot on the table where her money was before the dealer just fucking pulled the chips back. It was brutal, man. So there was that. And another one, it was a, I was playing against a Chinese guy. Uh, he was like a tourist or something, Chinese tourist. And uh, he came in with like three grand. It was a private uh, blackjack game. And he lost it in like 35 minutes. He lost three, he, and he was only playing like $100 a hand. I don't know if you know anything about blackjack. You can, you know, play a hand, then if you want to double down, you can put another 100. He was only playing like one or $200 a hand. And he lost three grand in 35 minutes. Jesus. And he gets up from the table, and the dealer and I look at each other like, what just happened? It was really bad beats too. Like the dealer would have 16 and he'd have 20 and the dealer all of a sudden pop a five and they've got 21. If you don't know about blackjack, 
I'm sorry, but just really bad beats. Right, okay. Like, this, like, like, what are the chances of this happening over and over and over again? It was brutal. Yeah, sure. So then the guy gets up from the table, and the dealer and I are looking. I'll never forget. Her name is Joanne. She's actually VQ. She's like older lady. We looked at each other like, what just happened to that guy? That was crazy. Then he comes back to the table, and we're like, oh, my God. And he puts his, he went to the ATM machine. And he put $80 in chips on the table. He just lost three grand and he came back with $80. And I was like, oh my God, that is so cute. That is adorable, $80. So he bets the first 50, loses. Now he's got 25 left and like some single chips, right? He bets the 25, wins, gets 50. Bets the 50, wins, gets 100. Bets the 100, wins, gets 200. He keeps winning and doubling. And he fucking amazingly doing this he got his three grand back. Jesus. Like pretty quickly. I was like, wow, that's pretty weird, right? He keeps going. Now he's won seven grand of my company's money. Because that's what I was doing now. I was working for a company banking the money. Sure. Now he's got seven grand of my company's money. So in other words, he won his three grand back. And then he won the next seven grand. So he started with 80 bucks. Like forget about the first 3,000. And then down to 25 bucks. He made $10,000 with $25 in about three hours. And there's a break, the dealer has to shuffle the cards because we went through the deck. And he lost like two grand at this point. So now he's down to like eight grand or he's down to, I guess he's down to like, you know, he's down to eight grand total. And I go, yo, I gotta tell you something. What you did just now is, was incredible. Okay, I have been working in this industry for a few years. I've never seen anything like that. I am not supposed to tell you this, but you should get out of here, man. You should go home. Because that was like, that's a hell of a story at least. Oh, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. And he just like kind of like, he wasn't being mean, but he was definitely like not even dismissive. He's like, I hear you, I hear you. But let me just keep going a little bit. And I already knew it was going to happen, man. And he lost it all back. Again. And then he had like four blue chips, which is like $4. And he just like chucked it to the dealer to take as a tip. He said, thank you. And walked away. So Damn. that comes to mind. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's almost glamorized in a lot of places, probably particularly LA, New York. But then you see stories like that and you think, mm, should you find a different or a better way of spending your time and money? Sure. Maybe. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, it is glamorized. Yeah. Because... You know, when you, when you look at commercials for a casino, you, 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 you never see the losers. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm don't emphasize those ones. Right. Yeah. You see the guy like, yeah, and his hot girl, you're awesome, honey, you know. Um, and it has nothing to do with what actually, for anybody who's ever been in a casino, has absolutely nothing to do with what being in a casino, especially if you're there for hours, mm. is like. I don't care if you're in Vegas, like, forget it, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So and that's the casino side of things we've covered. Do you mind yeah. telling me more about your band years then? Um, what kind of music did you play? Who influenced you? And yeah, do you want to mind telling me a bit more about that period? Sure. Uh, well, the, the band was called Crisis. We were kind of like straddling the metal and the hardcore scene, which hardcore, if you think of hardcore, is like a little bit more metallic punk, okay. but a little more technical. You know, with a lot of groovy, especially New York hardcore, there's a lot of, 
like groove parts, stuff you don't want to move your body and punch people to, you know. Whereas metal, I think, tends to be a little bit more nerdy and less um, kinetic, so to speak. So we were like playing like metal that was also very sometimes atmospheric and, and like trippy and even almost gothy to like really brutal stuff for people to beat each other up to. And we had a, a female singer, so that, that made it a little bit different from a lot of our contemporaries. Her name was Karen, and I always say, we used to call her, call her the extra sister. Oh, cool. Because she had like a really beautiful voice when she wanted to, like she'd sound like Bjork. And then she'd get to like a raspy, like Janis Joplin thing, but then she could just start growling, like Linda Blair from The Exorcist, just like, ah, you know? So she had a range, and then the music kind of developed you know, I think along with her voice, like all the musicians in the band tried to find a musical range that could really reach those emotional peaks and valleys, you know, sure. be really dynamic. So it's hard to place, but influences, um, it's funny, I was talking to the other guitar player the other day, he just opened a, a biker bar in, uh, in Tampa, Florida, but uh, we were really influenced by Black Sabbath, and then uh, a lot of like actually uh like kind of stoner bands like uh i don't know like later stuff was influenced by stuff like sleep but then you know the singers like into the cocktail twins and the other guitar players into like a lot of 80s like new wave and stuff like that yeah sure i listened to a lot of metal and hardcore and hip-hop um a lot of new york bands coming up at the time like candiria also listened to a lot of jazz growing up the Bass player was a classically trained trombonist that just started playing bass because he wanted to play in rock bands and metal bands. So um, we're kind of all over the place, you know. I listened to a lot of thrash yeah. in the 80s too, like in the late 80s. I was first into hip hop and then when I started listening to thrash, I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. That's, that's a long ass song, Metallica. Yeah, for Fuck. real. <laughs> you got an eight minute song. Can you, do, man, you could do that. It's a lot of parts, man. So I really, I really liked that. And, and then there were so many good bands in, in, in New York yeah. at that time, like in the 90s, like bands that like hardly anybody's ever heard of that I still listen to, like, you know, Dead Guy and Kissing Goodbye and bands from the area. There's a band called uh, La Gritona from, from Boston, you know, Voivod from Canada. I mean, shit, all kinds of stuff, man. You know, but we all kind of took the things that we liked from all those genres and tried to make, you know, a new form of music or a new kind of, of like metal or, or rock with it. And so, um, so that was cool. And then they had three albums out before I joined the band. I was a fan of the band. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Like I used to go see them and just like, just jock them like, fuck, these guys are so good. And girl, these people are sick, man. And I used to, like, fantasize that I was in the band, as one does, you know. But I actually played guitar, you know. Right, okay. And then I met them in the scene because I was in another band, you know, and, like, you know, kind of clicked. But then years after that, um, I was kind of singing and playing guitar for this one band with, with my buddies uh, uh, Dre from Warzone and Mike Dixon from No Redeeming Social Value. And, and that kind of fizzled out. And then... 
Mike was like, yeah, you should join an established band. You should just join a band that's already... And I'm like, yeah, like, it's that easy. Like, I'm just going to, yeah, like, yeah. Just, <laughs> just, like, just yeah. join Metallica, fuck it, yeah, right? You know? He's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I started looking in, in the paper, because they had papers back then, uh, the Village Voice, and I saw an ad for a band. They said they were a band with influences including Black Sabbath, the Melvins, who I also love, and Acid Bath. Seek second guitar player. We have three CDs, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'll check it out. So I called up, and the thing goes, leave all messages for crisis. And I hung up immediately, like, like you know, that was like, this is like what I've been fantasizing about yeah. for, you know. So then eventually I called them back, and, you know, we traded music, and, you know, I had a proper, you know, uh, rehearsal with them, and pretty soon I was in the band. Sweet, and then yeah. yeah, and then we, that was in 98, and then 2000 we moved to, to LA to get a record deal okay, so cool. that's the other thing I was doing in LA yeah sure and how did that all transpire after that so you moved to LA in 2000 what happened next we moved to LA in 2000 we, we the band had three albums already um, and we basically just you know we tried to get a record deal we started playing the circuit you know the LA like the the, the LA rock and metal scene you know um, where bands like Rage Against the Machine and Tool and System of a Down, like all these bands had come out of that scene, like just a few years earlier, you know, maybe like, you know, half a decade. But uh, yeah, how did it go down? <laughs> well, we played a lot of shows. We wrote a lot of music trying to court the major label music industry. Mm. And they didn't like it. <laughs> and we didn't like it. You know, we were like, sort of like, let's try to make our music more streamlined and, yeah. you know, more accessible. Because if you, if you go and you hit up Crisis on Spotify or check out Crisis Metal on, on YouTube, it's pretty crazy schizophrenic almost music, you know, and heavy and, and enjoyable if you're into that kind of shit. But it's not radio friendly. Okay. So we tried to do like a radio friendly version of what we already did and it didn't work, you right, know. Okay. And we had played with all kinds of people and, you know, we, we actually were in the same uh, rehearsal space, not space, but building as Lincoln Park. They were like right beneath us, like right in the, like on the floor, right under ours. We'd see them all the time and they blew up like pretty soon after we moved there. Yeah. So it was like really obvious, like, wow, you can really, you know, so, so we tried that, but it's just like, I don't know, man, it's kind of like uh I'm thinking now, it's like sometimes this thing will happen to men where we'll be like, man, you know, I'm a nice guy, but girls don't like nice guys. They just like assholes, right? And so the, you try to do what you think being an asshole is. Right, okay. And it doesn't work because they just, well, no, you're just an asshole. And you're not even doing it right because that's not actually what's happening. So we try to do like, you know, oh, it seems like the major labels want this. Let's try to do that, but it because it was insincere. Right, I like so, that. So, yeah. yeah, so we just said, you know what? Fuck this. So we stopped, like, kind of backed away from the industry contacts that we had made that were sort of, like, pushing us in this direction. Because at this point, we did, we did make progress, you know? We had, yeah. like, labels that were courting us and lawyers that were taking us out and trying to make us deal, but they were all trying to screw us over, right, you okay, know? Yeah. And we're, like, rubbing elbows with the big wigs. I've hung out with Gene Simmons a couple of times, you know what I mean? And, you know, we're hanging out in parties with, you know, people from Motorhead and all these bands that we're really into. 
But meanwhile, the industry is just trying to screw us over, you know, and put us in this, like, give us a really bad deal in some music that we didn't even really like that much. Honestly, I didn't. So eventually we said, all right, you know what, let's just stop this shit and just whether we have a record deal or not, let's make the album that we want to make. So we put some money together and we financed just uh, we paid for some rehearsal. We wrote a bunch of songs uh, with this guy, Marshall uh, Kilpatrick, who's a drummer. He came and played with us for a little while. He got us like kind of got the ball rolling. And then another guy, um, Josh Florian, joined the band later. Wrote these songs, killer stuff, like maybe, you know, the, the most musical of, of the stuff that the band had done. You know, I mean, I can't say it's the best or, or the worst, but it's the only album I was on. Um, and it was a lot of progress because we took everything that we, we learned from all this like songwriting that we did before that combined with the heavy shit that we were already into. Okay, cool. And so we wrote this album and then we saved up for some rehearsal space and we got our, our buddy um, Billy Anderson who actually produced the Melvins and like like fucking worked with Kurt Cobain and all these like great metal bands and stuff uh, he really liked us so he was willing he was like dude just pay for my room and board and you know put me up and fly me down there I'll produce your record which is amazing because he's like like for that kind of music, just top notch, you know? Right, I see. So we recorded it, we recorded like eight songs, and then we shot that. In other words, like we gave that to industry people and we got a deal like that, which is crazy because we were trying to do everything we could to, to get signed by like, you know, kind of conforming and trying to do this shit that we thought would sell and nobody liked it. And then all of a sudden when we did what we really wanted, we, we, got, it, we got a deal within months. So we got the record deal, put out the record in 2004, and hit started hitting the road in, in 2003, like kind of preliminary tours, but when the record came out, we started touring like pretty heavily in 2004, like doing mostly national tours of the United States. Okay, sweet. And you did that for a few years after? Was that we did it from like 2003 to 2005. Okay, sweet. 2005, we went to Japan and did a, a music festival called the Independence D Festival, we opened for Dillinger Escape Plan and the Misfits, and that was awesome. And then we toured with a couple other bands, including Exodus, uh, who's a, a thrash band from, from the Bay Area. Yeah, okay. Um, Kirk Hammett from Metallica used to be in Exodus. Nice. And the two of the guys from Exodus played with Slayer towards the end of Slayer. So they're like, you know, they're one of the top, like, six thrash bands of, of the 1980s, you know. And we toured with them, and when we got back from tour, um... The band broke up. Yeah, uh, do you mind telling me how did it break up? Are you able to go into detail? I can go into it a little bit, but there, it was uh, it was the dissolution of a relationship between the other guitar player and his wife, the singer, right. or the singer and her husband, the other guitar player in the band. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know, without getting too into it, because that's like, like their personal stuff, um, I can just say that as a result of them breaking up she left town and left the band as well right so okay. and it was like the day after the band got back from tour so it was literally like see you when i see because like, when you come back from tour after being on tour for a few months you're just like okay this has been great fuck off i'll see you in a couple of weeks you know you need me, a break right you need a break yeah. you know what i mean living in a van for fucking three months at a time 
Um, but then, yeah, but then the next day it was like, and I got this phone call and it was like, ooh, whoa, did the band just break up? And the band just broke up. Yeah. Yeah, so that was rough. How did you react to that then when the band was just over? Badly. Uh, I got really depressed you know I just realized how much of my identity was tied into you know my my being in this band you know and the relationships that I'd cultivated yeah so much so all of a sudden it was like oh now go back to your job at the casino repeat ad nauseum you know until whatever you know so yeah so I started I don't need to be in a band I started making depressing music on my computer using Ableton. <laughs> just like, you know, it was hard, man. I just, yeah, I started, you know, just like abusing myself. I mean, not like getting heavy into drugs or anything like that, but definitely like partying a lot and trying to bury my pain. And then, I, and then like soon after that, I went through a breakup, you know, this, with this woman I was super duper in love with, you know? Yeah. And so that was hard. So that all kind of hit around the same time. So that was like, yeah, this is like, if this is like a true Hollywood story or one of those exposés, these are, this is like, these are like the rock bottom years. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. That was the period where it hit that, hit the yeah, fan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. once it's all kind of gone pear-shaped, shall we say, once you've hit that rock bottom, what kind of techniques did you use to bounce back? Like, Well, one thing I was encouraged to do was to, to go back to school and get my degree. My ex-girlfriend kind of like pushed me in that direction and, I'll always be thankful to her for that. Um, so I did that, but then I was like working and going to school part time and still like kind of partying like crazy and shit. So I was like, I had like one foot, I had many feet in all these pies. I don't know why you put your foot in a pie, but that's just made sense just now. So, and then I met this woman who was to become my friend till this day. Um, Katya, she was, uh, we went to school together and she started practicing Buddhism. Long story short, we dated for a little bit and she was a wild girl when we first met. And then she told me she'd been practicing Buddhism and I was like, eh, interesting. And then I just noticed over the course of months that she started kind of becoming more wise and compassionate and just really evolving like quickly sure and I was like what are you on she's like I told you I've been chanting I've been practicing Buddhism I'm like chanting she's like yeah I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo like for hours sometimes and I was like that's fucking crazy you know what I mean it's yeah, like sure. what do you do what and then she brought me to a, a meeting and I, I met the the Nichiren Buddhist community in in uh, in Los Angeles, and just met so many cool, encouraging, wise people, and just without any like pretense, just very sincere, and I was like, you know, I'm gonna try this, That's so cool. and that was like, twelve years ago, and I've been chanting ever since. You chant every morning? Yeah, every morning and evening. Uh, I, I, I'll miss a morning or evening sometimes, but the rhythm is in the mornings and evenings, yeah. Okay, and how long do you do it for? I try to do 40 minutes in the morning and then like a 20 to half an hour in the, in the evenings. Mm. I've done more, I've done less. I used to do like an hour yeah, sure. in the morning, an hour in the evening. When shit hits the fan, more than that, 
you know, take as needed for pain, as they say. You yeah, know? sure. Um, you know, when my mother got sick a bunch of years ago, I chanted for, for, for like five hours once. So, yeah. You know, so it really depends, you know. What but, do you uh, do? Do you like close your eyes? Do you focus on something, or how? What's the practice like? So yeah, there's a, there's a it's the object of devotion is called a gohonsan. So it's a scroll. Yeah. That was originally inscribed by a Buddhist monk named Nichiren Daishonin in the 13th century in Japan, and just more or less, it's got all these things written on it, you know, different symbols, different life states, different Buddhist deities. And the center it says Nam Myoho Renge Kyo in Myoho Renge Kyo in in uh, Japanese, and the the scroll is essentially a mirror. So one of the prime beliefs in Nichiren Buddhism, right, is it's the practice of the Lotus Sutra, which is one of the one of the Buddha's final teachings, and one of the main tenets in the practice is that each of us has the potential to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. And there's like a Buddha inside all of us. But we can't always see it. But the scroll serves as kind of a mirror. Okay? So when you first start chanting, your mirror is tarnished. So you can't really see your own Buddhahood. You can't see your Buddha nature. But the more that you chant, it's like you're polishing the mirror. Right, okay. And as you polish your mirror, you're revealing your own Buddha nature okay. to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I chant so I chanted the scroll. It's just a piece of paper. It's not magic. Sure. But again, it's like, it's like a mirror. So I chanted a scroll. Yeah. yeah and, and I s- recite a chapter and a half of the Lotus Sutra okay. in Japanese in the, in the morning and evening as well. Oh. It takes like three minutes. Okay, sweet. And what are the main benefits you found for yourself as a result of doing this practice? It's more compassion, more energy, just like vitality. Yeah. Wisdom. You know, understanding the relationship between the life that I'm living and the effects that I'm seeing manifest in my environment and the things that I see, I think, and I say. Sure. Or the, the things that I say, think, and do, rather. In other words, so, Myoho Renge Kyo, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo means, Nam means devotion. Myoho means mystic law, like a law that we know it exists, but we don't understand exactly how it works. Okay? Yeah. Like gravity. Like, I know it exists. I don't know what the fuck gravity does. I know that I can't fly. So I, I know that it exists and I'm subject to this law, but I don't exactly understand how it works. I know somebody does, I'm just saying. Renge means lotus flower. Now, you see the lotus flower a lot in Buddhism for a lot of reasons, but in Nichiren Buddhism, it's symbolic of the simultaneity of cause and effect. Okay? Because the lotus flower blooms in one season and seeds in the same, at the same time. Blooms and seeds simultaneously. Most flowers bloom in one season and seed in another one. Lotus flower happens simultaneously. So in other words, if you think of the seed as a cause and the blooming as an effect, they happen at the same time. So again, it's symbolic of the simultaneity of cause and effect. When you make a cause, that effect is simultaneously somewhere in the universe, it's on its way back. It's latent, it's going to manifest at some point. Simply put, what goes around comes around, right? And kyo means sound or teaching. So when you say nam myoho renge kyo, you're saying, I give devotion to the mystic law of cause and effect through sound. And the benefits have been immense. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this practice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It sounds like something fascinating that I need to check out more. 
So I certainly will at some point. Thank you for sharing. Sure. So let's move on then to Vietnam. We haven't touched upon yet. So you obviously have the years in New York, in LA, so around the States. How did Vietnam come about? So uh, I told you I went back to school. Yeah. And my last year of university, I took part in a study abroad program. I uh, won a scholarship. I chanted about it a lot. Nice. And I ended up, the scholarship was like X amount of dollars. And the scholarship was like 0.5 times X was how much money I could possibly win from the scholarship. And I just, I wrote my personal statement and, and apparently they were really impressed because they decided to pay for the entire scholarship for me to study abroad. So I lived in Hue for two months studying mm. Vietnamese history. Um, and I just loved it. I fell in love with Vietnam and just the people and the food and the vibe. And, you know, I'd already been to Japan and I thought Vietnam would be like Japan, you know, like, but Japan's like very different. Like Tokyo's like, people are like nice, but they're not warm. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. I've heard this actually. Yeah. yeah. I've heard say on the tube, they won't, or the trains, they won't talk to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. forget about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and they might be nice to you, but it's like polite, like, okay, here, be on your way. It's not like it's, it, I didn't spend much time there, but it seemed really difficult to actually make a friend there. You know? Yeah, right, okay. So when I came here, it was like, wow, people are warm and loud and just being mad inappropriate. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, just no putting on airs or anything, just really sincere. And, and I love that. Also reminded me of Puerto Rico and Jamaica a little bit. Like half my family's from right, Puerto sweet. Rico and Jamaica. So. It had like a tropical vibe to it, you know, which I liked too. So I loved it. And then when I went back to the States, I applied for the Fulbright Scholarship, um, which is like a scholarship that's run by the U.S. State Department. And so upon I won it. And then after I graduated, I came back to Vietnam on a Fulbright, uh, living in the Mekong Delta and teaching English at a local university. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like living in the Mekong versus Saigon? I know... They're both so different. I'm just curious to what it's like living in both. Well, I didn't, I, I lived there first. Mekong is just really chill. It's just a different pace of life. I love it, yeah. Yeah, people wake up early, which I do not. So one of my colleagues would call me like at seven o'clock in the morning, like, hey, what are you doing? It's like, I'm sleeping. <laughs> are you kidding? Yeah, okay. You know, I have to work at eight, but I'm just waking up in time to go to work. I'm not, you know, and then you go and sit and have coffee with your friends, with your colleagues for like hours. You just sit there and talk for hours, you know, and just, it's just a really, it's a different, there's no rush to go anywhere, you know. Um, and then right outside of town, you have these beautiful rivers and like this amazing culture that's developed around that. Um, just really simple. It was really, it was really a nice, a good time, the time that I spent there. And it changed me where I became like a lot kind of more sincere just because, you know, people don't understand irony or sarcasm in, you know, like traditional, traditionally, that's not a Vietnamese way of communicating. So you say something like sarcastic or, you know, being ironic and it's just like, why would you say this terrible thing. Yeah. It's like, no, I didn't mean it. That's why I said it. I wouldn't have said it, but it, what? Yeah, it's happened a few times to me. I think, well, this just didn't go well. This right. Didn't stick. Yeah. Right. So then you start just saying how you feel, you know, like really, and 
Yeah, and so then, so that was really good for me. Um, but then after a year, my program ended, and I got offered some jobs down there, but I, I found the city pulling me in, you know? I'm a, yeah. I'm a city guy, you know? Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. What is it you like about Saigon as a whole? One of my favorite parts is how diverse it is. Yeah. You meet people from all over the world, from America, Bermuda, Kazakhstan, Germany, France, Italy, South Africa, Australia, and you think, all of you are in this same bubble together. Yeah. I find it astonishing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Especially at Taodian. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because this is like kind of like the expat area. Um, I live in, where I live, it's a very local area, uh, Dakao, which is in D1, District 1, which is, you know, I mean, it's very, you know, you can navigate to places like here or other places in D1. Um, but like, I'm the only Westerner that lives in, in my building. But I've quite grown accustomed to be, being and living around Vietnamese folks. I was thinking about it the other day when I lived in New York, especially when I was depressed. Like I would like walk around and not talk to anybody. You know what I mean? Just be in my head and yeah. you know. But it's like when you're when you're around people that speak your language and you don't communicate, you're just a fucking weirdo. You know what I mean? It's like like what's up with this guy? You know. But now. Like, I'm just, like, the weird Westerner. You know, people might, like, the kids might wave hi or whatever, you know, but I have, like, an anonymity that I kind of like, you know? And, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't live here, man. Just, this, 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 like, man, I know too many people. I saw Casey on the way up here. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, she interviewed, you interviewed her, right? I did, she was the first ever guest. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout yeah. out Casey. Yeah. That's so funny. Shout out to Casey, yeah. Um, yeah. Did we, you say you were coming here? Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to work together. Oh, really? Yeah, I actually was one of the people who encouraged her to, to try stand-up. Nice. Which she's been doing pretty well at. Yeah, she has yeah. been. I went to see her in the Color Craft Beer okay. in like January. Yeah. yeah. Show you there? Uh, I was there at a couple of the Color shows. I'm yeah. not sure if I was at that one. I might have been at it. I don't know if I performed. Yeah, I'm just wondering. That is yeah. actually nicely what I'm going to move on to, which is okay. comedy. Yeah. So, obviously, you've encouraged Casey to do so. I've interviewed her, Kirk, Jeremy, and Neil. So. Okay few people from the scene. You're yeah. obviously part of it too. Yeah. How did you get started out in comedy full stop? Well, the first time I did comedy was in LA in 2013. I was in school and I took an anthropology class and they asked us to do a field study of a subculture in LA. And because uh, my friend Josh Hannes had moved to LA from New York and he was a comedian and I really loved stand-up comedy, I decided I would do a field study of stand-up comedians. As a part of a field study, you have to do what is known as participant observation, which means that you have to engage in the activities and, and the culture of the culture you're studying, the subculture you're studying. Sweet, okay. So I had to do stand-up. So I had to write like a five-minute thing and perform it. Um, and I did uh, in 2013. And then I didn't do it again. I didn't touch it again. It was like an experience. Uh, and then... Uh, it was at this place called Marty's in, in, on the Sunset Strip. I always forget the name of that place, but now it's just come back to me. Marty's was like an open mic. I don't know if it's still there, but on the Sunset Strip, people go there and like you pay five bucks and you can do your, you do your time or whatever. And so then in 2016, right before I moved to Vietnam on the Fulbright, a friend of mine was doing a, she wanted to put on a, a, a stand-up comedy show. And she thought I was funny, so she asked me to do it. So I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. So I wrote another bit and then I did like seven minutes. I think it's on YouTube actually. Don't look it up, it's not really good. But um, 
Yeah, that's how I got into it. And then when I moved to Saigon, um, I made friends with this guy, Adam Palmiter, who was a, a comedian who was running shows here in Saigon. There were a few groups running shows here, you know, but I kind of made friends with him. He's from New York also. And uh, yeah, we met outside one of his shows and outside of Pew Pew. Yeah. My place. Yeah, I've been a few times. And we're like shooting the shit. He's like, hey, you're funny. You ever think about doing stand-up? I'm like, yeah, I've been actually thinking about it. So then he got me He got me on stage at Indica. There was an open mic every Monday. And pretty soon after that, I was doing shows, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, there was a competition, a Vietnam comedy competition, a few like weeks later. And all of a sudden, I was like doing comedy. I think Kurt was doing comedy around the same time. Okay, sweet. Neil wasn't yet. Uh, Casey definitely wasn't. And Jeremy was. Jeremy's one of the, the old standing guys yeah, sure. here in Saigon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, Angie, Angie the Diva, who, who just went back to Hawaii recently, and uh, Vu Min Tu, a Vietnamese comedian uh, from Hanoi. She's from Hanoi. And another guy, uh, Fu. We started a, like a kind of a collective called Saigon Funny People and ran a bunch of shows under that name. And so that's pretty much how I started. Yeah. And what kind of things do you do currently? Um, obviously with Corona, it's pretty tricky. But yeah. do you still do shows? What sort of things are you up to? Well, not lately. I run my own shows under the banner of Asia Out Loud. Right, sweet. And then uh, the comedy portion. Asia Out Loud, I do like a bunch of different like kinds of content. You know, food reviews and stuff about culture and writing. Um, and then I started running shows under the name Asia Out Loud, The Outsiders. Um, stay tuned for The Outsiders podcast. Uh, Vodcast, because we're going to have some video content for that. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I've been running shows, putting shows together, and you know, just trying to you know, get my favorite comics on stage and you know, trying to make, make some money and also make it like, equitable for all the comedians that are doing it and stuff. You know? Yeah, sure. You know, I, like, definitely there were some times in the past where I felt like, oh, okay, why brought this many people in and this they cost this much to get in and I get paid this much? What? This feels like music all over again. So I started feeling like, well, I could do that, you know, but also to be equitable because I don't know, as an artist, it's like they're like, oh, you like you like playing music? Great. You can come play music over here. And because you enjoy doing it, I don't have to pay you that much. And I'll just make the money. I just provide the venue. And that happens all the fucking time. Fucking you know? And then so when I found it happening with comedy, it's like, I mean, I'm doing comedy. I'm not doing it to make money. Because honestly, if you're doing stand-up comedy to make money, you, you need to pack it in. Because it's not that great. Every said that has been on the boat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At this stage in the game, at least, you know. But, but at the same time, somebody's making the money. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I try to I try to make it equitable, try to make it fair, um, and just you know try to provide a like a fun environment, you know, and get good rooms and stuff, and you know try to cultivate talent in the comedy community. Okay, cool. Yeah. This brings us to almost the end of the conversation, and the final question is quite broad. What are the aims for the future? Then this could be in Saigon, this could be beyond that, this could be comedy music or whatever else, what are the general aims for you, JK? I definitely want to keep getting better at doing comedy, because whether it makes any money or not, it's just what it does for my spirit and the way that I, 
I just interact in the way that I process information and the way that I think about things, you know, it's really, right now it's really good for me. Although, you know, you catch me on a bad day, I can be like, fuck this, I never want to do it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. But right, you got me on a good day. Um, so I want to keep doing that. And also you can go anywhere. You can just go anywhere. Yeah. You can show up, hey, you got a mic, you know, like whenever I go, whenever I travel somewhere, I go and see if they've got a mic, you know, so, oh, I'm in Bangkok, boom, go do some mics there. Oh, I can do a show, great. You know, I went back to New York, all of a sudden I'm on stage in New York. So it's like, you know, it's a good way to, to get out and, and meet people and grow. So I want to keep doing that. I think about putting a band together again. Okay. I keep having this one idea. Um, I don't want to talk about it too much, but uh, we'll see if it happens. I have an idea for a band. But I would just do it for fun, you know what I mean? It's like, besides, like, if there's anything that's more of a dead-end road than playing comedy, it's music, trust me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot of work. The thing about comedy, it's just you. You, you just, just you and a mic, you know, all this equipment, you know, about, like, four or five other people you have to navigate with and all this shit, and, yeah. you know what I mean? It's just, you know, it's the hard thing about comedy, but it's also the cool thing about comedy. It's just, it's like, just you. It's you. You, you, know? you the mic. Right, that's it, and the audience, you know. So, um, but I think about doing music again sometimes. Um, thinking about getting another degree. Okay, nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. just to up my game a little bit. I, I teach English here also. Yeah. Um, I think I like it a, a little more than a lot of, a lot of my uh, uh, colleagues or, you know, contemporaries, you know, other, other teachers and uh, I want to get better at it. I would like to not teach English. I would like to teach like something in the in the social sciences. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I think yeah. I'd be good at that. You so think that's what your degree would be in your new degree. My degree, well, my degree is in global studies. You know, which is like sweet. kind of like the interconnections that have happened between like countries and cultures through globalization. You know, is globalization a good or a bad thing? How is it? You know, um, so that's what I studied. So I I, I like. Even my teens, like getting them to think about stuff like that, you know, especially in Vietnam where it's just so kind of recently opening up and helping young people to get a grasp of their place in the world and what they're able to do, which is like fucking like vastly greater than their parents could or their grandparents could. Of course. You know, so to just try to, you know, try to plant that seed. And in, in, in the kids, the minds of, of, you know, young people, like, you know, you have power, you know, just by being alive in this time. Yeah, sure. What are you going to do with that, you know? Um, so, yeah, think about that. And, you know, to continue to do, make content on the, with the Asia Out Loud brand. And, um, yeah, I'm working on, uh, I shot a, a vodcast, a video podcast uh, a couple of months ago. I kind of edited it. I'm thinking about whether to put it out or not. You know, I, I really, you know, this is awesome because it's like, this is showing me. And I, I mean, I have equipment and stuff, but I just like, you know, I haven't like, I just haven't, I just got the mics last week. But you know what? Sometimes you shouldn't even wait for all that. You just do whatever you can with That's whatever exactly you why I start, why I started it. Yeah, yeah I was going to no. wait for the fancy studio and the equipment and I realized that will just make me procrastinate even more. So just start it. Boom. With the phone. Yeah. There you go. Now episode seventy one, so Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So I just went for it. Wow, very cool, man. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, man. pleasure. Where can we find out more about what you do on social media perhaps? Um JK Hobson on Instagram, JK Hobson on Facebook, uh JK Ho- uh Asia Out Loud on Facebook, 
And I have an Asia Out Loud YouTube that I'm working on, and I'm about to dump a bunch of content on there. So just Asia Out Loud and J.K. Hobson. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's all good. J.K., I really enjoyed this, mate. Thanks very much for coming on, and all the best for the future. You are welcome back if you ever want to come back. Cheers. Thanks, Connor, man. Appreciate it, dude.